My name is Dr. Joshua Walrich. Welcome to my new podcast, Willing to be Wrong. For those of you who don't know me, I am an NHS surgical doctor, author, and unintended influencer, currently on a year out from the hospital to study for a nutrition master's. My debut book, Food Isn't Medicine, is due to be released on the 15th of April, and in it I talk about the complex nature of weight and health, the principles of health at every size, why the phrase food is medicine is actually harmful, and then I debunk a whole bunch of Nutribollocks, ranging from celery juice supposedly detoxing your liver, to alkaline diets curing cancer, or just, you know, the standard carbs make you fat. If any of that resonates with you, it is currently available for pre-order. But without further ado, please let me introduce my first guest of the season, first guest of the, of the whole podcast, Megan Crabb. Megan Crabb is a writer, presenter, and digital creator known online as Body Posi Panda. She makes content across the topics of body positivity, mental health, feminism, and more. Her book, Body Positive Power, has taught thousands of women how to quit diet culture and embrace body acceptance. We talk about quite a lot of things in this podcast, but specifically around Megan's experience with having an eating disorder growing up, and also how social media has impacted her relationship with food since. All right, introduce me then, or you and do that after. I was going to do that like separately so that it wasn't super cheesy, but yeah, you're just like really cool and I'm really glad that you're here and, <laughs> and I'm keeping all this in and I really like you and I think you have important things to say and you're the only person ever who's told me to stop mentioning my privilege. So really, I think it's great. I think it's... I think we got it covered, you know, like we have yeah. actually met several times. You do yeah. mention it every time, multiple times um, throughout. Just to be and careful. Y- well, you know, like it's, it's I, I know where you're at. I know you're aware um, yeah. well, of where go. you're coming from. So, so that's great. There's my introduction <laughs> of you. You're awesome. Um, I think today we're going to see whether we can talk I- about... Um, your experience of disordered eating and eating disorders and perhaps how social media has fed into that all life experiences have fed into that um it's all one and the same now isn't it so just as a as as a bit of a warning uh, i don't know exactly how specific we will get but we might get quite specific so this might not be an episode to listen to if you are currently struggling or in a period of recovery from an eating disorder that that wouldn't be helpful for you um so please be aware of that is that all right that sounds good to me good yeah yeah, go for it. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Hello, I'm pretty good, thank you. It's nice to be reconnected with you. I feel like before this year exploded, we were crossing paths all the time. I know, I know. I mean, I think the last social gathering that I went to, I don't know about you, but the last social gathering I went to, we ended up getting photos together. It was the Prince's Trust thing, wasn't it? Yes, and I specifically remember asking you like, hey, should we be here? And you were like, nah, <laughs> we really we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah, I, it was, that was a weird time. I think that was that March. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, and I think it was that. It was a really weird like section where I think Boris had literally just been like, "Yeah, it's fine. I'm still shaking hands. Don't worry." I think he'd like said that specific thing, <laughs> and I seem to remember kind of in my head going, "At what point do I start just refusing to go out of my house before I get told to do that?" It was a weird. It was a weird time. It was also a time where nobody had officially said that we had to wear masks yet and I remember being asked about masks in my head going yeah like this is a good idea of course it's a good idea but having to be really careful about 
public communication and going, I don't know, I don't want, you know. So yeah, that was, yeah, that was the last time we saw each other. It was, and you have continued to be my kind of voice of reason on my feeds for medical advice, pandemic and, and otherwise. I'll give you the £10 I promised you after this week. Um, no, that's nice. £10? Nice you think I'm that to... cheap? Yeah, that's what we agreed. Don't, don't, just because we're on recording now, don't try and up your value. Um, yeah, no, thank you. But yeah, talk to, me, talk to me about you. Talk to me about maybe some stuff that people might not know about you. Um, I was going to say, babe, you didn't, you didn't prepare any questions, did you? No, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's very fun. <laughs> I feel like preparing questions, like to me, it might, maybe I should just do it. But in my head, I'm like, that's just really... Like, we don't need to prepare questions. We're friends. We just chat. Like, I want to hear about you and your experiences about disordered eating because you are always very honest. Um, your feed is always very encouraging, but it is curated. And that's not a bad thing, but it means that people don't... I think there's a lot about you that people don't necessarily know, and I'd like to hear some of it. Okay. Yeah, I'm open to that. Yeah? Should we start in the beginning? Yeah, start at the beginning. So... I would say that I began eating in a disordered way when I was just under 10, like around the eight, nine mark. And that's when I started dieting under the guise of um, getting healthy because I didn't want to tell my parents that I was dieting because we just didn't, I didn't want to talk about that. I didn't want to talk about body image or food or um, have that put under any scrutiny. And that's, that's when the dieting started. And I am very all or nothing and can be quite um, just absolutist in my thinking. So when I latch onto something, I'm either doing it or I'm not. And that was a very slippery slope for me down the diet rabbit hole, becoming kind of more and more restrictive over the years and and being more and more surrounded by diet culture, um, taking in body ideals more. And it that, that spiraled and developed with lots of contributing factors into anorexia nervosa when I was 14. And that took a couple of years to kind of get out of the worst of, but I would say that I've, I had disordered eating up until my early 20s, until I started learning more about intuitive eating and really actively taking a look at myself and my mental health and how, how is this gonna get better? Cause I can't do this. I can't have this disordered relationship with food and my body for my entire life. So it's been a long, it's been a long old journey, but that's kind of, that's, that's the public stuff. That's the stuff that people know about. So if you would like to Well, now pick... I can, now I can ask questions. Okay, go ahead. Right? And I'll pretend I pre-prepared them. Um, <laughs> so, because I find, I find this stuff fascinating and not in like a morbid way, but in a way of like, I think we don't talk enough about, um, just about how common some of this stuff is and um, be that uh, kind of specifically diagnosed eating disorders or just generally disordered eating as as a concept um, and as a, as a practice um, and especially around it developing in childhood. Um, I know I had I had sp um, particular experiences as an early teenager around um, what I only have recently come to understand as being food insecurity. Um, with my dad being an alcoholic and not, not knowing whether I was actually going to get dinner in the evening because he'd sometimes send us to bed and think we'd eaten. Um, you can't argue at the age of 13 with that kind of stuff. Um, so I found ways of making sure I didn't go hungry and stole Pringles from the corner shop and kept them in my room and then would just eat them whether or not I got dinner as well 
when my mum came home. Um, and it's things like that that you just, I think there are, there are experiences that are really, really common that we don't talk about. So I think my first question to you, if you wouldn't mind, is are there, are there some other things that you remember when you were around 10, when you were a bit younger? What was it that, that made you or that contributed to you thinking about dieting in the first place at that kind of age? Because that is quite young. Um, obviously, it's still common, but it tends to be more of a teenager kind of thing rather than, you know, almost in single digits. Um, were there were there things you can think of? I was slightly different in body type than my peer group. And looking back, I, I probably wouldn't even pick that out if I saw a photo of me now. But at the time when you're that age, a <laughs> slight difference is a, a monstrous difference. Oh, yeah. you, you know, convince yourself that you couldn't be any different, any more different from the people around you. And I think I just became hyper aware and that was fueled by, you know, the general cruel comments that, that kids make, you know, that I, I have some standout moments of a boy that I liked saying, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're all right for a big girl, but no. And, you know, I grew up with a brother and that was teasing and that was nothing, um, extreme but they stuck um i've always been very capable of holding on tightly to any bad thing that anyone has ever said to me so they stuck in there and in terms of the disordered eating i think i took i took my first cues from my mum and that's not to say that my mum was bad or that she was consciously modeling a bad example she was doing what she thought was best for herself and you know she was just as trapped in diet culture as as most people are now, but you know, her generation definitely had far less access to resources to question diet culture. And so she was quite into dieting for the majority of my childhood. And I followed in her footsteps, but I saw her footsteps and said, okay, if she's doing that, I can do one more all or nothing thinking. And that's where I took my cues. And I remember when I moved to kind of secondary school age, so you're like 11 12 within my peer group it was almost a cool thing to eat in a disordered way it it was very questionable to just have a completely healthy relationship with food or not be not be counting calories not be doing some kind of excessive exercise to to work things off i had one friend who would literally give us tips on disordered eating and I don't know whether she went on to develop a, a diagnosed eating disorder or a full-blown eating disorder, but that was just the way that it was. We would we would just spend our kind of afternoons after school poring over images of celebrities we wanted to look like, talking about how we were going to get there and what we were not going to eat and how much we were going to exercise. It was just, it was a very constant feature of girlhood for me yeah it's again everyone's experience is different but i I don't and this might be um being being a guy as well um but i don't don't remember any of those conversations at school in regards to dieting i don't think i ever had one conversation um i just remember being bullied for being fat that's all i remember but i never i think i probably would have wanted tips from people at the time that probably would have been what 13 year old me would have wanted but 
there were yeah no there were never any never any conversations about that um and it is i mean obviously we know that that society in general tends to place a much bigger burden on aesthetics and looks and dieting on on women in general um but yeah it's interesting um do you think that was uh coming from a early days of toxic masculinity place where the, the boys just weren't supposed to be discussing these things i don't know because actually for me I, I never really at the time i never really thought of dieting as something that would solve my problems um i wanted to not be fat but i didn't have any concept of how that would come about um and I don't know whether that's also because my uh, my parents were kind of naturally genetically quite thin, so they ne they never really they never really modelled any sort of dieting um, practices to me. Um, I remember my mum trying to help me at one point and telling me not to buy any sandwiches that had more than ten grams of fat in it on the packet, and that would help. I don't know why that was the number, um, but uh, that stuck for a while. But that was when I went and asked her for help rather than, and I think that was, I was a bit older, probably like 14, 15. But younger than that, it just wasn't, it just wasn't even something I considered. I, I think in my head, I'd always thought, well, it's okay. When I go through puberty, I will get taller and I will get thinner because that's what, I think that's what my mum had like reassured me on when I'd complained about it. Um, which very, which may have very well been the case. Puberty is is a weird and wonderful thing, and sometimes kids put on weight before puberty, and sometimes they put on weight after puberty. It's one of the reasons why putting kids on diets is really, really harmful because you can very, very easily stunt growth if you if you you're unaware of the manner in which their body is working. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really know. I, it it just, I think that was the thing that just stuck out when you said it because to me that was it was never a conversation that I had ever considered i never even thought about how to do it it wasn't which is which is interesting i don't know why it may have been may have just been the way i grew up everyone's different aren't they um, you know what i find interesting the perceptions that we have about what our bodies are going to do when we're young because <laughs> i genuinely believed that i would go through puberty and emerge as jennifer aniston like there was no <laughs> there was no alternative in my mind it was, was for sure <laughs> yeah she you know shoot right up and become jennifer aniston have fancy oh. hair <laughs> your hair's fancy now it, but now yeah it wasn't what i <laughs> it wasn't all the time <laughs> i had blonde i had frosted tips <laughs> nice wow why have i not seen a picture of that i'll send you one later <laughs> thank you um but also i correct me if i'm wrong i seem to remember you talking about the added difficulty of being mixed race or, or a woman of color at that age as well i seem to remember you talking about that at some point um and is there an element to that with the jennifer Aniston thing as well did you think you would become kind of like everybody else or whatever at the time or i really desperately um wanted to look more like my mum when I was young, I wanted to be blonde hair, blue eyed, pale skin. And uh, my skin is very pale at the moment. We're in the dead of winter. Melan melanin goes into hiding. Like, don't, don't judge me on that. But I grew up in a very, very predominantly white area with a black Caribbean father and a white mother. And we were definitely, there was maybe one other kid in my whole year that was non-white um and my dad worked 
at the schools that I attended. So it was very much um, known that that was that was part of my identity. And um, I just I didn't see anyone in my peer group like me and I didn't see anyone in the media like me. And I think mixed race representation has has come some way, but we've still got a way to go because it's so nuanced and there's so many ways to be mixed race. There's so many different the heritages that can contribute to that and um, appearances that can come from that and experiences. But for me, yeah, I, I wanted to be blonde hair, blue eyes. And I think, I think that came from, there was a couple of experiences in my childhood of me being out somewhere with my mum and running into people who we didn't, who didn't know us as a family. Uh, when I was with a friend of mine who was white, blonde hair blue eyed and me being assumed to not be the child and as a child that's quite a jarring experience because you're like that's no that's that's my mum she's mine why don't why don't you see that um and I definitely had conversations with my parents like what am I what is this how do I how, how do I even talk about this I don't get it uh and yeah yeah that was that definitely carried into my adult years in some way I can't ask you anything um you know uh, no, I have zero that, really. experience. I have, I, have, <laughs> I have zero experience on that. You've told me I'm not allowed to mention my privilege, so I won't. But I've, you know, I've, I, no, honestly, I don't. I just, it, I have no idea what it's like to not have to not see representation because I never even considered the fact that I did see representation of myself. It just seemed normal to me. Um, I never questioned any of that stuff about what I looked like. I just questioned whether I should be fat, which definitely would would appear to be from a logical standpoint an added complication on that whole decision around dieting and trying to change your appearance and all that kind of stuff and yeah I have nothing to say about that but thank you for sharing it (laughs) oh I can't I'll just make I'll just make some shit up and it won't be it to try and be poignant and I can't you mentioned something about um lots of different factors contributing to you developing an eating disorder and there's been a bit of a trend recently could be wrong people might disagree on social media of kind of boiling down the development of eating disorders purely to going on a diet and although of course there is an element to dieting and the development of disordered eating and potentially developing eating disorders it's not it's not that clear cut um and i wonder whether you there are things in retrospect that you've after kind of thinking about it that you'd be happy to share that you think have kind of interacted because i think it's important for people to get a bit of an idea as to how complex it is because we we talk a bit black and white when it comes to eating disorders and I think we do people a disservice when we do that yeah for sure this is this is something that I only really faced long afterwards uh in my 20s and when I was writing my book and I was writing a chapter about eating disorders and I realized holy shit I don't really understand this um and so I I I really tried to dig in and do a lot of research and and start going to therapy to uncover it as well, which was hard because I kind of just wanted to like move on. Um, it had taken so many years to, to get a little bit free. I was like, why am I going back here? But it was, it was necessary to, to understand myself and my experience more. And I think what I realized very quickly is that my psychological, emotional makeup is quite textbook for someone who would be predisposed to an eating disorder. So I and have always been a perfectionist um I have the all or nothing thing I'm very very hard on myself um 
I can become quite obsessive with with uh, routines and, and, and habits. And I also had low self-esteem and, and bad body image um, and was very susceptible to diet culture. So I think those parts of my psychology coupled with diet culture just perfectly, like horrifically perfectly. Um, and I think as well, a component that people don't often recognize is uh, there's, a, there's a physiological element in that if you have the other components and you start down the route of disordered eating, there's a certain point where your brain is, is changing. Your brain changes and reacts to what you're doing and it becomes more of a reward system. It becomes more attuned to, to seeing what you're doing as rewarding. And um, if you go far enough, far enough down the line of restriction and kind of into starvation territory, that's having a huge impact on how your brain is even working. So it's, it becomes harder and harder to even see clearly what you are doing. And if, so if you have those three things, the psychological, the physiological, the cultural, all working all at the same time, and that's not even getting into, you know, whether there's a genetic component, which lots of people think that there is, it's, mm, yeah, that's, a, that's a perfect storm. And I think we want a simple answer, right? We boil it down to yeah. dieting because this is a fucking scary, horrible, life-ruining thing. We want to be able to point to a culprit and say, like, that is the problem. To be able to fix it. That's what we want to do, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, I understand why we do that, but it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely not the whole picture. I think there's a really good quote, and I can't remember what... I think it was Marilyn Wan who wrote in her book not every diet leads to an eating disorder but most eating disorders did start with a diet so the diet is almost like um like the lighter fluid i guess yeah. for a lot of people but the match and, and the thing that you're striking against kind of already has to be there yeah or the other way around but yeah the match is that yeah no but i get what you mean it's something that i've questioned myself not necessarily like I've questioned whether or not it's complex because of course it is but I've, it's something that I've questioned in regards to why I never developed a clinical or maybe I did and I, and I just never got diagnosed and you know this is the thing it's there are there are so many people with subclinical eating disorders and so many people with undiagnosed eating disorders because we we normalize the behaviors that that can so often make make up eating disorders um you know, it just, we, I, we, we've already put a, a trigger warning on the beginning of this. And I, and I think it, I think sometimes it's important for people to hear the, those kind of behaviors. And I know that for myself, for example, I, I know, no idea where it came from, but I developed the, the urge to chew and spit my food as a result of wanting to eat the food that I had decided I wasn't allowed to eat and not allowing myself to go over my calorie target for the day because my fitness pal had great control over my life. Um, but I don't know where I learned that because it's a very common thing. And maybe that's just the way that our brains are wired, that that's one of the things that we tend to go to if we give ourselves long enough to think of think of tactics and options. Um, but I definitely never heard it as a, as a thing. I definitely never come across it online. I definitely never had anybody tell me that they'd done it and secretly lock it away as like, oh, maybe I should remember that for future. I, I, f I just completely came up with it by myself, or so I thought. That, that kind of stuff is very fascinating to me as to, um, you know, whether or not at the time, if I'd have gone to see someone, would I have met enough criteria 
And actually, you know what? I wasn't thin enough. It's the hard truth, isn't it? Um, mm. to, to meet the criteria at the time, the, the, the diagnosis or the definition of atypical anorexia, which now is a thing which is good, although it's, you could argue about whether atypical is labelled on the correct one, um, but the definition of atypical anorexia, which is essentially anorexia nervosa, but without the requirement to hit a, to be under a certain BMI, didn't exist back then. Nobody would have diagnosed me with, with any sort of, um, I may have been diagnosed with something else, who knows, I was just speculating. But uh, I think it's, it is, um, yeah, it adds credence to that whole thing of this is, this is really complex. And some people have that inbuilt resilience that you don't earn, that, that is, that that's why there's so much of a genetic component to it as well, as to why we're finding more and more out about how, how much of an impact genetics has. That some people just have that resilience that they can, they can be as disordered as you could imagine and never get to a point where they end up developing a, an eating disorder clinically. Um, it's fascinating in a, yeah. a non-morbid way. It is, it is fascinating, um, but it makes it really hard to find an answer, even though we would love, we would love to pinpoint something. Um, but in my mind, it makes it therefore even more important to be so aware of the way that we talk about this stuff, the way that we talk about body image, the way that we talk about dieting, the way that we talk about weight, because how much harm are we doing? A lot, I would argue. <laughs> but but, it, but we just, we, we don't take any of that kind of stuff into consideration. Um, and, and I think that brings us nicely onto social media. Because when you were 10, social media wasn't really a thing. Same here. I'm not like super young. I'm not pretending that I'm a different age. <laughs> when I was 10, I was on Facebook. Um, but... Um, but yeah, social media was not where we got our information from, right? Um, I remember the, the 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 strange days of fine, slightly irrelevant. But I was a I was an old boys' private school, so this is why my mind goes to this. I remember the days of finding a a porn magazine in the in the teacher's drawer. You just wouldn't you just wouldn't do that anymore. He'd confiscated it apparently. Um, okay, but you, yeah, yeah. convenient story, um, Mr. Robinson. <laughs> but you just you you wouldn't that just doesn't happen anymore you've just you've got a phone like it doesn't you don't need that kind of stuff and so it's there's just all all of our image consumption our media consumption our learning about things that we wouldn't necessarily have come across is all online now um and uh how have you found repair because your period of repairing your your relationship with food post clinical eating disorder um unless I'm getting my dates wrong, would have come about with social media very much on board. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did you find, how did you find that experience? How did you find that impacted what you were trying to do? Can I, I think I just want to touch on, you made a really interesting point essentially mm. about um, the, the difference in how we consumed our media. I worry sometimes these days when I kind of talk about the impact of magazines you know print media and how that was on our body image the young people of today are going to be like dude what like magazine magazines are whatever it's not they're not even a big thing but like at the time genuinely they were biblical to some teenage girls and definitely to my friendship group and that yeah that has shifted oh, yeah. to me put, massively put, i mean again to go back to the porn mags that was my first experience that was my first ever like it, it like experience of any sort of sexual images we're going into mm. weird territory now, but fine, let's do it. My first ever 
like picture that I saw of that kind was of anal. Which, see, I told you we're going to weird territory. Which for me led like a led to like a weird like thing as a teenage boy of thinking that was the that that was like the pinnacle because that was what I'd first seen and it was very weird. So magazines played a massive impact on it was just media full stop you didn't expect it to go down that territory did you um, no absolutely not I but feel it's like true. I know too much about you well you know not anymore like <laughs> but um it's it, it did it made a huge difference but also weirdly I didn't know what that was right when I'm 13 11 11 it was first year of secondary school when I was 11 and I saw that I had no idea what that was I had no idea there were there was a difference like I just I just made I was just like oh okay so what we I think that's interesting as well because what we see and what we see fur we we sometimes have nothing to compare against and so we see this this uh bring it back to diet culture very very quickly so that we can get away from the weird porn conversation um we see something we see a method or we see a way of eating or we see a what I eat in a day or we you know and if that's the if that's really the only thing we've been modelled or that has been modelled, it can so easily just be taken as, oh, okay, that's what we do. Cool. That's, that's it. And I think we're not very good at um, questioning what sources we give authority because when I was growing up, if that was printed in a magazine, obviously it was true. You would, you know, who would print something that wasn't true? And uh, I think we, we kind of give the same false authority now to all kinds of like figures people with platforms who don't know what they're talking about you're very familiar with this um on social media don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> uh, um yeah yeah so to, to to bring it back no 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 you're not going to tell me about your experiences with porn mags because i come on you can't just let me sit in that and wallow in that weird I'm sharing not lie space to you. You know that I'm a very open and honest person when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I've never owned or like seen um, a porn magazine that just wasn't. You've never just... seen a porn magazine. Well, I've like seen one on a shelf, but I can't say I've ever seen the inside of one that just yeah. wasn't. See, I feel like it just wasn't a to... thing. Girls were not and <laughs> not allowed to be curious about these things. Okay. I mean, I wasn't allowed to either. I grew up in a very strict Christian household, but I wasn't allowed to see those things. I just found ways around it in your teacher's drawer that's, that's such an odd that's such an odd it had been confiscated we knew it had been confiscated we knew it was there that's was the thing was the teacher there when you were seeing it no okay don't good. be silly <laughs> it's not boys schools aren't that weird well, maybe they are in some places but no that was it wasn't like a here class this is what we're going to learn today <laughs> no should probably no, cut that out <laughs> huh no I refuse to cut any of that out it's, right, way, cool. it's way too interesting Mm-hmm. So diet culture. Let's, let's, diet let's culture, social media. Yeah. Anal. Um, no. no I... oh. Sorry. <laughs> no, see, these are the. Co- this is why I don't prepare questions because it's way more interesting. We'd have never got on to talking about seeing anal in porn magazines unless if I'd have prepared questions. Maybe I should prepare questions. Loosely, loosely themed talking points. <laughs> no, no, no. Points. Go on, um. What was what we're talking about? Social media. So, social and media and its impact on your 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 kind of your healing and your healing, your, I guess. Yeah. Your journey from clinically diagnosed eating disorder to to where you are now, which is obviously incredibly well put together. Oh, thank you. 
didn't even have to brush my hair to yeah. say that. Um, I I used social media when it first came about, like the majority of people have done and probably still do. It was just um, an instrument with which to bash myself for not being the same as the things that I saw on it. And I used it for diet tips. I used it for fitspo. My feed was like headless pictures of women with abs. Like it was very yeah just those just like hyper focused on the body this is the body and that was what i used it for so it was not a good time it was just a scrolling deeper and deeper into um self-esteem issues and hating myself and that shifted when i stumbled across people talking about body positivity i think what had happened was that someone had intentionally used a fitspo hashtag on body positive content which i know that you have been um accused of doing in the past and had to justify but it's effective it's effective yeah. i stumbled when across people something. used to look at hashtags but yeah <laughs> back in the day children um that was effective that that made me that exposed me to something that i wasn't looking for and that opened a small crack in my brain of there is an alternative to what I'm using social media for. Uh, there are maybe people here who understand something about how I feel and are offering up a different way of living. And um, long story short, got into that a bit, did that for a bit. <laughs> wrote a book on it. Wrote a book about it, um, <laughs> carried on for a bit longer. And you know what's interesting is that I, I've kind of got to a point now where... I'm much happier in my day-to-day -day life when I'm not thinking about my body at all. But I've built this platform and kind of name for myself for being the person who talks about body stuff all the time. And I'm much less, I put myself under much less pressure now to adhere to that, even when I don't feel like it. But for, a, for I have, think for about two years, I was staying in that constant body focus because I thought it was my duty to my audience and um, I didn't want to let anyone down and I saw myself as responsible for for putting this this stuff out here even if it wasn't necessarily doing me the most good anymore so I guess in a way I've kind of ricocheted around into quite extremes on social media and how it's made me feel about myself was uh, so I mean I think that is what you're talking about the concept of kind of body neutrality or is that not the yeah. phrase you've put on it yeah i i think so i think for me because i had been in such a depth of body hatred it's almost like i needed the strong stuff i needed the overwhelming sycophantic body love narrative and the absolute rage at diet culture and fat phobia like i needed that stuff to pull me out of the abyss that I was in. But after a while, you just mellow out a bit, or that's 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 how I felt. I was just like, yeah, I, I still, I believe in this, but I don't actually need this to be my entire being anymore. And, and mellowed down into more body neutrality, or as I like to call it, just not giving a fuck. Like, <laughs> I, just, I just really like going about my day to day and not having, yeah. a, having a second thought. Not about making my body. everything about body image. Mm -hmm. So when are you changing the name then? <laughs> what are you, my brand management? <laughs> you don't pay me enough. Um, or anything. Uh, 
No, well, no, because I, I think that's an interesting one because you know my 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 hesitation to changing my original name on social media. I'm, I'm not saying that your name is problematic like mine was. Don't don't get me wrong, dude. I didn't follow you for so long because of your name. <laughs> well, so you mean you wanted to because yeah. of my content, but not because of my name? Yeah, I was like, what is this complete cognitive dissonance <laughs> with this with this guy? I don't with trust this. Weird this. hashtags and it's weird. <laughs> it's weird name. <laughs> this fatphobic right name and it. it's body positive content. What is going yeah. on here? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think we we hang on to things that we like, right? Even if we're no longer talking, I'm going to try and relate this to you. Even though we no longer um, necessarily fit what it says anymore. Obviously, this is different. Mine was problematic and mine was about something I had 100% left behind and not did, not agreed with anymore, which is why I ended up changing it. Um, for those that don't know, it was called Unfattening. Catchy, problematic, though. Um, and uh, just go back far enough. I've left all the posts up. There's no, there's no, there's no pretending here. Um, but, uh, you know, Body Posy Panda. Um, panda? Who doesn't love pandas? Sure. Uh, okay, then. Um, <laughs> was it just kind of like a bit of alliteration, like cool, like pa- or, was, or is panda a thing? Is panda like? No, they're a... my favourites. They're oh, my okay. favourite animals. That was it. It I did like a whole a project on them. Oh, okay. When I was like, not recently, <laughs> not, not like the other week. That's what you've been spending your your lockdown doing? <laughs> I'm making projects on pandas and hammerhead sharks because they're both Scrap really books. cool. <laughs> it's bound. <laughs> hey, there are worse ways to have spent a lockdown. There are. There are. <laughs> But um, your point, so no, sir. Your no, point no. Was... My my point is, when when do we get a change to Megan Jay and Crab? Or do we not? Or do we think at some point that might happen? Uh, I think at some point that fairly soon that probably will happen. But I don't want you to think that like you've now inspired it because it was kind of like something I've been thinking about anyway. Sure, if you say so. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I find that I I find that int- I I think there are a lot of people on social media who start with a with a phrase right who then end up changing to just their name i think it's interesting i think the longer you spend on social media as long as you're using it i think we're using it relatively well but who knows um i think the more and more you get to wanting to just be you on something like that um or i definitely have felt that um and if you're lucky enough to have an audience that follows you, then that's wonderful. Um, I think yeah. they will. I think people will know Megan Jane Crab, or just Megan Crab. It depends an... whether you want to bother with the middle name. <laughs> I think there's an interesting conversation there, and this isn't um, specifically about me. I think this is social media makes it incredibly easy for us to box people into their original narratives or even just narratives that that serve us the the user as we're scrolling uh, i mean we're literally in boxes in momentary ca- like moments of our life captured in boxes and we're not always the best at letting people grow and letting people outgrow our perception of of who we want them to be and i think there's definitely been some fear around that for me over the years because People get mad. People get mad when you are different from who they think you are. I don't, I don't know if that's something that you've ever experienced, but that takes a lot of work to kind of shake the pressure of that away to be able to come out and, and just be you. You know, you know I have. 
you know, the first time I, I ever met you, I was a bit of a mess of trying to be a certain person and not be insulting slash say the right thing slash, do you know what I mean? It was, I mean, you were very gracious, but it was, uh, that, that lunchtime was in retrospect, fascinating <laughs> for me. Um, uh, but yeah, no, of course it does. You, you, you get, you put yourself in or other people put yourself in. I think it, I think it's a bit of both. Um, you put yourself in a, in a box of this is what I do. This is what I talk about. And oh crap, if I actually express the fullness of what I mean by this, people will realize I'm a fraud. Um, yeah, it, for me, it's got easier, which is good. Uh, it's not, it's still not like super easy, but I think it's definitely got easier. Um, I don't really know why. I don't know if I've done anything, if I've maybe setting some sort of boundaries, but I haven't really done that deliberately. So maybe that's accidental, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't, I don't think I've like, um, I don't think I necessarily can give myself credit on that really. Um, cause I think it's kind of happened naturally without me having a huge amount of saying it, which I think I've got very lucky for that to happen. I have the opposite experience in that it has not happened naturally. It had to come with some very, uh, strong boundary setting for myself and repeatedly saying on social media, Hey, treat me like a full human being. I'm not just this. I'm also this. Can you stop? Can you not? Can you, can you just let me be a human? over and over again or, or so it felt like and um I think there's something as well in you are someone who I have always seen on social media as a person whose whole thing is not social media you have you know always had ongoing well another whole job and basically a, a giant life off of social media and I think if you have more outside of social media and also more people in a group who know who you are and aren't asking you to put yourself in a box and you can extend your full humanity outside of the internet then you are probably less likely to slip into the need to shrink yourself down on the internet mm. i don't know if that meshes with your experience in any way no i think it does there were small periods of time but i don't think very frequently i i, I don't think i ever really thought about what I should or how I should portray myself on social media it was more just what parts of what I'm doing should I show rather than necessarily how will this make me look obviously there were times when when that was the case because I'd show something and I and it wouldn't go down so well I'd be like oh crap I need to think a bit more about how I how I, how I behave um but yeah, I was. I, I think I definitely have just been very much like, well, I, I want this to be me, and a, a bit like when when during a period of changing my name and exploring more th new things, it didn't. It wasn't an overnight thing because I I didn't pretend like I had suddenly got it all sussed out. I I expressed my discontent and frustration and changing narrative and opinions through social media because to me it that just made sense to do that. I was like, I'm not. That this is what I'm feeling. Let's chat. Because I, I feel like I've been um, fortunate enough to have an audience who are willing to chat in that way, um, which for me seems normal, but I'm aware that's not quite what the internet is always like. Um, so yeah, I think you've said stuff to me in the past about the um, 
the body posi label um, being a bit of a double-edged sword in a sense of you not being black enough to be body posi, um, not being fat enough to be body posi, not being insert enough. Is that is that fair? Is that something I'm allowed to ask you about? Uh, it depends. Are you going to pay for my therapy next week? <laughs> <laughs> so you said you, you were already seeing a therapist. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry. We, we, we've covered this a lot, so we can we can lightly tread this water. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, when I changed my name to that, it was a very different scene. There weren't news articles being written about body positivity. Um, it was just it hadn't become the buzzword that it hadn't become the moment yet it was it felt like a very organic small community of people who were just exploring ideas and were exploring healing um and there were far 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 fewer conversations about privilege about who does this movement belong to about let's let's examine these things with nuance um and talk about marginalization and and different experiences it was just it just all felt like a giant melting pot where kind of no one was critiquing anything very fiercely we were all just throwing our opinions and life views in and and so when I changed it it didn't it didn't occur to me to be like ah uh, should I should I put myself in this position is this is this a label that I should kind of claim as my own you know I was coming at it from the eating disorder perspective and not from the lifetime of uh, experiencing fat phobia perspective, well, internalised but not externalised. And then, you know, the conversations developed over the years. I've, I feel like I have um, tried to walk the tightrope as well as I can of being aware of my privilege constantly, of utilising it, of using it to, to spotlight other people and other experiences and not invalidate my own experience and having come from this from an eating disorder uh, perspective and and just having an identity that is super in the middle I am super in the middle of of many forms of identity um, of ethnicity size sexuality I'm just right there on on the middle tightrope and uh, yeah that does that has been difficult to balance some years sometimes I've internalized everything people said about I have no claim to this I shouldn't be here I'm hurting people by being here and um and felt like a piece of shit and other times I've been like well wait wait a minute there's there is validity in my experience there is validity in my knowledge and I I really try my best I really try my best to balance out the space I take and the space I create and the help I give and what I take for myself and it is something that I can no longer spend every day of my life trying to calculate and trying to figure out I, I cannot for my own well-being and for my own survival tear myself into anymore every day I can't do it and I've just I, I accept I accept that there are people who think I shouldn't be in the position that I am in or have have come up in this movement the way that I have I accept that and you know I also accept that I meet people in the street who, who break down crying and tell me that I've saved their life you know this is a very dichotomous 
way to live and to, to have such extreme opinions about you on either side and for the sake of my own sanity I kind of just have to stop trying to control it so much and 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 just trust that I've I've tried to do my best and other people's opinion is out of my control I think you have whether that means anything <laughs> or not I think you have I remember, I remember the first time I met you, I remember somebody coming up to you in the street and I don't think she cried, but I think she was like super excited and super grateful to, to even see you. She had no idea who I was, it was great. Um, <laughs> I, felt, I felt super small. Um, but yeah, it was, I, you, you do some amazing things, um, but I think you'll find a lot of relief when the name changes, I have a feeling. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and I think that'd be a good thing. And I'm going to take full credit for it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is what white men do. This is it. You have the idea. They come in and say it was theirs. If you say so. I mean, people can make their own decisions. They listen to the podcast. Um, (laughs) Look, I I won't be put in a box. Um, I refuse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that just works across the board. Yeah. The nuance, Joshua. Where's the nuance? uh, That's on my Instagram post, not podcast. Um... Damn it, I lost a chance to plug that book. It's in the book. It's in the book. The nuance is in the book. Add it to the introduction and add it to the end. Oh, no, don't worry. That was it. That's staying in. Um, you know what? I think just in case we, we stray into dodgy territory yet again, um, unless there's something very specific that, um, that you think we should cover and we haven't covered, I think that's been a wonderful, a wonderful conversation there. Um, despite not having any pre-prepared questions. No, and I have to say, I reluctantly say, you've, you've, you're a very like, gentle handler of sensitive information. Basically, I'm saying you're good at this. You're good at this. Thank you. I'm going to leave that to you. Um, <laughs> well, look, let's, let's pretend I have some prepared questions at the very end, because I should probably ask you about some Nutribolic stuff, because I think I'm meant to do that. And my, like, the whole PR stuff would be like why didn't he ask about Nutribolic stuff so mm-hmm. let's go with some made up questions right at the end that I clearly pre-prepared um, which will be let's go with let's go with two or three I'll work it out as I go um, what is the most in retrospect ridiculous Nutribolics you once believed oh, that's such a good question this is difficult because I don't want to get into like I don't want to get into triggering territory because I believe some real fucked up stuff some real fucked up stuff that's um, okay i mean we've talked about chewing and spitting and not being black enough to be body positive i feel like we can talk about lots of things you know what let's just go with the absolute fallacy that is zero calorie noodles i don't know if you mm. ever experienced them yeah yeah they don't taste i remember when they came out there was big hype i had to go to holland and barrett and and stock up very expensive much more expensive <laughs> than uh, you know regular noodles that have nutrition in them um and i just they were just the most foul thing i've ever tasted they were like slimy worms of nothingness and i convinced myself that was food oh did you eat a lot of zero calorie noodles uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes yes and you know what strangely never never really filled me up it's weird that isn't it it's mm. almost it's almost like your body wants energy yeah, yeah, maybe like calories like, aren't the enemy. Almost like you can't trick it very, for very long. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Uh, next question. What is the most ridiculous Nutribolics that you have seen recently? 
Because zero calorie noodles are old. They're old school. That's like Halo Top ice cream. It's old school stuff. <laughs> seen recently. I don't yeah. get exposed to much of this these days, you know, unless I'm, you know, at my sister's and she's got uh, morning television on. Let's think, what have I seen on morning television that's, that's annoying? I still see a lot of intermittent fasting stuff. I don't know if it yeah. kind of took on a new life within the pandemics. People were like, hey, pandemics aren't hard enough. Why don't you also starve yourself for two days of the week? But there was quite a bit of that around. Yeah. Even today, I saw something about how it's apparently the cure for long COVID, because of course it is. So it's about the, the, the long standing symptoms of after you've had a COVID infection and then you are right. all, and then you are tired and lethargic because it's like a post-viral fatigue. So I don't know how intermittent fast is meant to cure that, because if anything, I feel like it's probably going to make it worse. Um, yeah, Yikes. autophagy is a fun buzzword, isn't it? Um, uh, okay, and third question. I knew there were going to be three. What is the one, if you had to pick one piece of Nutribolics that you wished people were just immune from believing? Obviously, there are lots. I know there are lots. But if you could pick one, which one... It can either be the one that you think causes the most harm or the one that pisses you off the most. doesn't matter. This is easy because I just did a post about it. The concept of anything being detox, that's yeah. it. There's just that whole, if that, could, that word could just be removed from like diet culture language and just reserved for when it's actually appropriate, you know, that, that would be great. I, I agree. Especially as, it's, as it filters its way into cancer treatment and that pisses me off to no end. Yeah, if you can, if you can juice cleanse your body of toxins then you can cure your cancer right oh yikes i know um thank you ever so much for chatting to me um thank you for being wonderful as always uh i think it's i i am very very grateful to have met you through social media um because as i've talked about recently social media can be a bit of a lonely place and you don't always know exactly who the person is behind the profile um and they can sometimes appear very nice and very very balanced and then be an absolute twat when you meet them um and uh so yeah thank you for being you and thank you for for being nice to me over the years Cause it's been a bit of time now um mm -hmm. and and i appreciate you very much and uh i hope we can continue to be friends oh that was lovely that was better than 10 pounds Thank you. <laughs>